Hi, everyone. This is the rise and fall of LuLaRoe. I'm your host, Stephanie McNeil, and I'm a senior culture reporter at BuzzFeed News. In this podcast, we are diving deep into the world of LuLaRoe. We speak with retailers whose lives were turned upside down. We also talk to experts who can shed light on how these MLMs really work, including the red flags you should keep an eye out for. This week, I'm talking to writer Meg Conley about moms and LuLaRoe. Meg writes about women's work, economic justice, and the home for various outlets, including The Guardian, Slate, and Harper's Bazaar. She also writes a newsletter called Home Culture, which I definitely recommend you check out. Let's get into it. Hi, Meg. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm really excited to dig into why moms in particular were such a big target for LuLaRoe when they were building their business. So what some people may not know about you, Meg, is you actually have a personal connection to the LuLaRoe story. You grew up in Chino Hills in Southern California, which is the same community as Deanne Stidham, famously the founder of LuLaRoe. I would love if you could paint a picture for us and describe that community. Yeah, so Chino Hills is a suburb in Southern California, and it's kind of one of those places where, you know, the oldest standing building is like a drive through you know? Something that was interesting, though, is that, you know, Chino Hills was not necessarily an inexpensive place to live, even in the 90s. And so all of the moms at one point or another, got involved in an MLM, either to supplement income that they were earning in their professional work or to bring in income because their care work, you know, they they didn't receive any compensation for that. And I grew up with my mom getting... um invitations to MLM parties because it's like the 90s. So people aren't sending evites yet. She would get like an actual invitation in the mail to a party, which I was always so jealous of because like as an eight-year-old, like all you want to get is like a little envelope addressed to you, inviting you to go to a party. But my mom always seemed burdened by these MLM invitations. And my parents would be like, well, you know, Pampered Chef or Mary Kay, like these are these are scams, but they're scams where the person trying to sell you the scam doesn't necessarily know that they are being scammed too. So you go and you're polite and you buy the smallest thing in the catalog and and then you go home. That's so fascinating because you as a child observing this world and seeing the need for MLMs with many mothers who needed to supplement their income and observing it. And then seeing your mom saying, well, you know, this isn't a legitimate business. And, you know, her having to navigate that is so fascinating. I know you actually have an anecdote or a few anecdotes about the Stidham family because you did meet them at one point, right? Yeah. So I was raised LDS and they were LDS also. Mormon is, you know, what LDS people are commonly called. And I grew up in the same religious community as the Stidham family. And I attended the same congregation as them when I was young. I remember Deanne from when I was a child because, and this might be a 90s lady thing as much as a church lady thing, but, you know, the women at church all had like their own like 
kind of smell profiles like as a kid because it's like the hairspray and the makeup and then the perfume, you know, would like come together to create this like aura of odor. And as a kid, I always felt overwhelmed by how Deanne like moved and presented herself. And even the way that she smelled, it all just felt overpowering to me as a child. She was a very forceful, dynamic personality. Even as a kid, it always felt like she was kind of trying to sell you something. (laughs) And I get what you mean. Just one of those people who you remember from childhood because they were such a big presence when they walked into the room. And that's something that even... You know, I've seen Deanne in real life a few times, but even just watching her on Instagram or on TV, she really just has this larger-than-life presence. One thing I wrote about in my LuLaRoe reporting was that before Deanne started LuLaRoe, she had for decades been doing what she called dress parties, where she would buy dresses at wholesale and then sell them to members of her community. And I read an interview with you where you said you actually had been to one of these dress parties. Could you describe that for us? Yeah. So those started, or at least I knew about them when I was young. And it seemed cool the way that All the MLM parties I got to go to seemed cool. The dresses were all there on these big racks and they seemed so fancy to me as a kid. You know, in the 90s, like with the velvet tops and the big poofy bottoms, you know? I mean, that was like... That I thought that was very fashionable as a child. And I wanted one, but my my mom wasn't ever interested in buying what Deanne was selling, including these dresses. And so I didn't get one. Oh man, you didn't get one. I know. <laughs> Shoot. But at the time I thought it was, uh, I thought she had figured it out, you know? As overwhelmed as I felt by Deanne, I also saw this woman who was in my religious community, who was a mother, who had kids, who had seemed to figure out how to make all that work while also being professionally fulfilled. I mean, as much as my mom detested MLMs, I also saw the way in which she was disenfranchised from a lot of the world because of her work as a stay-at-home mom. And you know, as a child, it seemed like Deanne had figured out what my mom had not figured out. Of course, as an adult, I understand that's not what happened, right? I can totally understand how you felt that way. And she clearly had tapped into something and she was being a role model for women like yourself, young girls, but also for women like your mother who were looking for a way to make some money on the side, you know, and kind of take control of their own destiny. And so interesting how she was able to then package and sell that image with LuLaRoe. There is a really long tradition of MLMs targeting women, particularly stay-at-home moms, into these direct sales companies. What do you think is the genesis of stay-at-home moms being such a rich target for those type of companies, like the ones where you ended up going to multiple parties as a child? Yeah, so Care Work is the only production in America that is always happening, and it's the only production in America that is 
officially locked out of the GDP. And so with that being the constructed landscape that MLMs thrive in, stay-at-home moms especially are vulnerable to their promises because stay-at-home moms are always laboring but never being compensated for their labor. And so when someone says, an MLM, Deanne and Mark says, I see what you do is labor. Like, I see you working. I see that you are producing something of value. Like, that's how they always start their pitch, right? To stay-at-home moms. They say they see that. And I'm going to help you enter the labor force, like the formal labor force. I'm going to help you some of your production be counted, like literally in America for the first time. And so it's like they build a bridge for these moms that like, you know, didn't exist. Like in an Indiana Jones movie where it's like, what's the one where like he's trying to get across this like pit and then a bridge shows up like, and if it was invisible and then he throws sand on it so that he can see the bridge or whatever. Okay, well, like, Deanne and Mark are, like, throwing sand across an invisible bridge. And a lot of moms step onto it to have what they do, to have their work, like, finally compensated. But I think also, like, counted as something that matters. That is a, a new experience for a lot of them. Thinking about LuLaRoe in particular— They specifically targeted stay-at-home moms as their primary demographic. Deanne had her really powerful origin story where she explained how she was able to do this while still taking care of her multiple children and serve as an example for all of these women. And then all of their marketing materials say things like the opportunity and you will have freedom and you're a boss, babe. What do you think was the image they were selling to these moms? I mean, some of them whom you knew and were your peers. And why do you think that that message was so compelling to this community? Yeah. So, I mean, initially this starts within like Deanne's own circle of influence, right? Which is at the time women in her religious community. So Mormon women who have been raised in a culture, you know, where they're told it is your divine calling to become a mother and to make a home. And so Deanne is selling to women who have heard that from their church culture, but are also, you know, were raised in the 80s, 90s, 2000s, and got conflicting messages from the culture outside of, you know, the three hours they spent at church on Sunday. And so Deanne came to them and said, like, I can bridge that tension that you're experiencing. And you can make a home, you can raise your children, and you can make some money. I mean, like, you know, some of these women were ambitious and wanted to have careers. Her offer was appealing to them for those reasons. And some of these women really wanted to do care work full-time, but live in a society that is not interested in compensating anything that happens in the domestic sphere. And they had to buy groceries. And it's expensive to live in a one-way, and impossible maybe, to live in a one-way home in America. And so, you know, within her immediate sphere of influence, that's the tension she's bridging. But then eventually it expands, right? Like you don't become a billion-dollar company by selling exclusively to Mormon women. Like, there are just not that many Mormon women. And so Deanne's message also appealed to women who were professionally ambitious, are professionally ambitious, 
wanted to have careers, um, grew up wanting those things, and then, you know, decided to also have children and realized that they just had impossible choices in front of them. They couldn't afford it. I love that you noted that this was not only Mormon women, because I think that's something that's a little bit of a misconception about LuLaRoe. And in actuality, I would say the majority of the people I've interviewed who were in LuLaRoe were not Mormon. And this was a lot bigger than her immediate circle. And like you said, her immediate sphere of influence. What do you think the fact that there are so many women around the same age as you or I, millennial, young mothers, young Gen X mothers, who are joining these multi-level marketing companies, what do you think that says about our existing labor market? It's impossible. (laughs) I mean, if we looked at the structure of MLMs with any serious contemplation and then considered the structure of our current economic system, we would see that they're both the same shape. They're both pyramids, right? Like both rely on unpaid or underpaid labor, both exploit care work and care workers, both absolutely exploit people of color with Black women always suffering the worst. So the values being extracted, captured from care workers, and then they're excluded as stakeholders, right? I feel like you're kind of getting at an article that you wrote that I found extremely fascinating. So I was hoping you could talk a little bit more about it here. The title is Motherhood in America is a Multi-Level Marketing Scheme. I kind of feel like you've been alluding to that analogy a little bit, but can you say exactly what do you mean by that? And what are the parallels you see between being a mom in America right now and being in a multi-level marketing scheme? Basically, American capitalism depends on a foundation, a base, you know, a lower third of the pyramid that's made up of unpaid care work. Mothers and stay-at-home mothers, especially in America, bear the brunt of, you know, volunteering care work in their communities, in their homes, without receiving any kind of compensation for it. Not just in wages, right? But like, in any kind of government-administered benefit. Like, (laughs) until I started writing professionally, I didn't have a way to have my own social security benefits. My social security benefits were all through my husband. Like, my benefits depend on him. I'm a dependent. But that's bonkers because capitalism actually is dependent on care work. But it's kind of the same way in an MLM, People have to recruit a downline in order to make money because they're going to make most of their money off of bonuses they get from building this very large downline of recruits who keep buying products at wholesale that they'll never sell, okay? Well, the same thing happens with Care Work in America. And it hurts stay-at-home moms. It hurts parents generally, but it also hurts care workers who are paid below a living wage to take care of children while the children's parents go and work. Mark Sidham, who is Deanne's husband and co-founder, 
He has some interesting thoughts on American motherhood as well. He has said that wealth comes from identifying an underutilized resource and an America that resources mothers. Essentially what he's saying is they noticed that there was this untapped potential of all of these stay-at-home or part-time mothers. I'm curious what your take is on that. Well, I love when people tell on themselves (laughs) because they did treat mothers like they were a resource and then they exploited the resource, right? They extracted as much as they could from vulnerable mothers in order to make a profit. I mean, I think that that goes back to the problem with our current form of capitalism is that at the end of the day, it is based on extraction instead of actual meaningful production. He thought he was empowering mothers when he said that, but um, I'm trying to think of how to phrase this. (laughs) I totally understand what you mean. It's someone who thinks they're saying something that is a net positive in the world, but in actuality, it's kind of a dark statement. When you look at what LuLaRoe has become, I actually saw that you tweeted that you believe the opposite. And you said that you feel like mothers in America are overutilized. I'm curious what you mean by that. Right. Well, I mean, it's like when he said that mothers in America are an underutilized resource, that would be kind of like, you know, hearing the biggest corporations who are responsible for climate change, like saying that like the environment is an underutilized resource. It's like, no, like it's it's been beyond utilized. Like we're actually in a climate crisis because you've been so good at utilizing the environment. So we're in a care crisis right now because mothers have been so overutilized, overworked in America. And that when we offer them an opportunity to lose money in a capitalist pyramid scheme, they should be grateful And when they're not successful at it, you know, it's on them. Mark Stidham has talked a lot about that. He feels strongly that everybody in America is given the same opportunity and that what they do with it is up to them. Like what they make with that opportunity is up to them. And so if a person is successful, they've earned that success. And if a person fails in LuLaRoe or in their economic life generally, then that is their problem and no one else's which I think is a really rich framing from someone who built a business model that literally depends on a downline of hundreds of people for one person to be successful. You really have hit on something that I've also observed in reading interviews with Mark that ultimately for many LuLaRoe sellers, they say, turned out to be extremely damaging because the message from LuLaRoe was so American capitalist, so pull yourself up by your bootstraps. And they really, really hammered home. We all are starting on the same equal footing. Everyone has the same opportunity. And if you are not successful, it is because of something that you didn't do. And I have interviewed so many women who have told me how damaging that sentiment was because they really felt like they were working so hard and they were putting everything into their business. And when it failed, it felt like a personal failing. 
What do you think makes these women stay in a company like LuLaRoe for so long, given all of the economic and societal pressures on them? Well, I think that Mark's message of like pulling yourself up by your bootstraps, I think that the only reason it's even begins to be compelling is because it's what we've been told our whole lives. Like that's the American dream, right? And these are people who have been told that if they just worked hard enough, if they just had a good enough idea and they just worked hard enough, then the American dream, that would be theirs. And so it's not just Mark telling them that if they fail, it's because they didn't do enough. It's the cultural messaging that they've had since before they could think. I mean, these are messages that have been in their heads before they they even knew they got there. And so they were primed for Mark's exploitation. That is so true because you're right. We all as women went through this whole thing with, yeah, Sheryl Sandberg and girl boss. And it was just such a movement. You're at TJ Maxx and all of this stuff says hashtag girl boss. Right. <laughs> and if you don't have the tools in your wheelhouse to be a CEO or a CFO one day, you still want to jump on the bandwagon. And this was a great way to do it. And, you know, obviously the messaging of LuLaRoe or other MLMs is you are your own boss. You are your own CEO. You are a business owner. Right. And, you know, the girl boss, white feminism promises to solve the problems of capitalism with more capitalism. And so it's, you know, it's always a logic loop, but it's hard to tell you're in a logic loop. Like if you were born into one, right? Like, how do you get out of it? I don't know. We're all working on that, I think. <laughs> yes. So I I tried to get a job <laughs> a couple of years ago. My husband and I lived in Oakland. I don't have a college degree. And so, you know, I wasn't applying for jobs that paid a lot of money, but I did want to get out of the house and do work that I felt fulfilled by. And so I applied to a few bookshops. But when I found out what the pay was, it wouldn't have begun to cover childcare. And at the time, you know, we didn't make enough money for my husband's income to cover childcare either. And so I couldn't work at the jobs that maybe I was qualified for. But then other jobs that I could do required experience, but they did not count my caretaking years as experience. And so there were several, well, there's a long time of applying for jobs and then no one ever getting back to me. And so even when I tried to enter the market sphere, I couldn't, right? And so what women think they can do with MLMs is stay in the domestic sphere whether because of cultural issues or religious issues, but then also enter the market sphere in a way that both spheres find acceptable. Absolutely. A lot of people DM me or email me and they say, how could these women get into this, right? How, like, how, how could they do this? How could they do this? And what I find so valuable about your perspective and what you just explained is it's almost like, how could they not do this or how could they not try? You know what I mean? Right. Because there's right. so it's one few, of very few options. options. Exactly. Exactly. That scenario that you're describing is really poignant in this moment, just kind of taking a look forward in our present day, because there are so many women who realized during the pandemic 
this isn't sustainable anymore. I can no longer work a full-time job from home and take care of my children. And it's hit women and mothers especially hard. You know, over 4 million jobs have been lost by women in the U.S. since the start of the pandemic. And there are so many women who have said time and time again, you know, if you look at surveys, if you look at news reports, that they left the workforce because they could no longer sustain their career on top of childcare in the pandemic. How do you think that might influence kind of the situation that you're talking about? I'm a little worried personally that it could lead to even more women joining things like this that ultimately will not be fulfilling for them. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting because we keep talking about the great resignation, you know? But I think what's happened during the pandemic has actually been happening for the past couple decades. And the pandemic accelerated a pretty depressing trend that I think is going to keep happening. I think women are going to be more susceptible to MLMs. I think we're going to see MLM rebranding after the big, you know, LuLaRoe thing. I think that the messages will change, but the model will stay the same. And I'm going to be honest, like, what if I couldn't write, right? Like, what if I didn't have that skill set as much as I wanted to work in a bookstore that still didn't cover childcare? Well, in a post-pandemic world where it's even harder to get a job, In that world, if an MLM rebranded like just the right way and I didn't have another way to make money, like I think knowing everything I know, I would still for a moment think, well, maybe (laughs) because you're just desperate, you know? That's such a poignant point for you to make. And I think that's what I hope people will get out of this podcast, out of this episode and out of the LuLaRoe story in general is that this is not a scammer problem. This is not a a couple of women problem. This is a societal problem. And this is something that, you know, is a product of all of these cultural forces that you, you know, write so eloquently about. So obviously, you know, MLMs have been around for a while and we're not going to stop all the MLMs out there. But what are some positive things that could help moms, that could help women who care about caretaking, but also want to contribute to the family finances, that could happen that you think would eventually provide less incentive for these companies to flourish? You know, I'm not an anti-capitalist. Like, I like markets. I just think we have to protect care work from markets, right? And so the way that other countries do that um, effectively is just with a robust social safety net. And so if we had, you know, (laughs) meaningful paid leave, if we had a way for children to access care, kids deserve care. And whether their parents um, are in the market sphere or not, whether they've invested poorly in leggings or not. And so the social safety net needs to extend to them. And so that would be universal childcare, absolutely, for the kids whose parents work, but it would also be a meaningful cash benefit for children whose parents are care workers at home, because that is an economically productive work. A universal basic income would give 
women especially, you know, a minimum of economic empowerment so that they could have choices. A lot of the women who fall prey to MLMs got there because of a lack of choices. And so then when they're offered one single choice, you know, to take advantage of this great opportunity, they do. None of this is like impossible, right? Like we've seen other countries do it. It's just going to take meaningful collective action. And then, you know, outside of policy and legislation, being present in our communities, you know, mutual aid around, you know, care work in our communities can be impactful and meaningful. The minute that we broaden our definition of what care work is and who is doing the care work, and who deserves care, which is everyone, then I think a lot will follow. Meg, it has been so fascinating talking to you. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. (laughs) I think a lot of the people, especially a lot of the women who listen to this podcast are going to learn a lot from your perspective. So thank you so much. Thank you. The Rise and Fall of LuLaRoe is a Discovery Plus podcast. From Discovery, our executive producer is Michael DeSalvo. From BuzzFeed, our executive producer is Carolina Butzlaviak. Special thanks to Shelly Sinha at Discovery, Samantha Hennig and Richard Allen Reed at BuzzFeed, and Pete Ross at Left Right. Our show is produced by Neon Hum Media. Jonathan Hirsch and Sharon Morris are the executive producers. Our lead producer is Muna Danish. Associate producer is Rufaro Faith. Our production manager is Samantha Allison. Sound design and engineering from Mark Bush. Our theme music is from Epidemic Sound. See you next week.